This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Bernie has been busy. Ben Wallace-Wells has been traveling with Bernie Sanders, who's been doing rallies in more than a dozen states over the last several weeks. We'll have a report. And Katha Pollitt, later in this hour, has some advice for the anxious and the depressed among us and how to survive the coming months of the age of Trump. First up today, Robert Mueller's defenders among Republicans. Trump Watch starts right now. Trump has stopped hinting about firing Robert Mueller. In fact, today, uh, just a few minutes ago at a uh, conversation with reporters uh, outside his golf club in Bedminster, Maryland. He said, uh, I'm not dismissing anybody. Uh, we want to look a little more into what has led to that standoff. Uh, it may very well be because Mueller has a growing number of supporters among Republicans. And for that story, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He's also written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, Salon, and many others. Uh, he's also co-editor of the Buzz and has appeared widely on TV and radio. Uh, Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, first, update us on the facts about the Republican support for Robert Mueller. Well, um, there have been, as you know, a number of um, tweets and comments and interviews from Trump in which he has hinted, not said, but hinted that he's thinking about uh, getting rid of Mueller, which, by the way, is harder than it looks. We can talk about that. But yeah. you can't just, he can't just fire him. Um, but um, because of that, there's been a number of uh, Republicans who are starting to push back a little bit. Two key Republicans in the Senate, um, one is Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. He's, you know, he's been a persistent Trump critic, kind of in the John McCain mold. But also Tom Tillis from North Carolina, much more surprising individual. Um, both of them have introduced separate bills in the Senate that would uh, really hamstring Trump's ability to fire Mueller. What their bills say, they're slightly different, each one, but what the two bills say is if uh, he's fired, then a three-judge panel of federal judges would have to review to make sure that this was all done properly and by the book and theoretically could uh, reinstitute him, re reinstate him, or, you know, whatever. So... So um, this is really amazing, startling pushback from Republicans. Um, when, when Tillis was asked about this, um, you know, is this aimed at Trump? He said, quote, there's no question that it is. Wow. Um, and he said, again, when he was asked, you know, that Trump says this is a, a hoax and a witch hunt, he said, I don't believe the investigation is a witch hunt. Hmm. So um, they're... They're trying to create some protection for Mueller, and I, I, I can only think that they're doing that because they know that if Trump were to fire him, it would lead to a tremendous political crisis, maybe not quite a constitutional crisis, though it could be something close to that. Um, it, would, it would mean that, that 
the the fire that Trump took when he fired FBI Director James Comey back in May would be uh, tenfold or a hundredfold greater. And I think the Republicans are maybe worried that this could bring them down as well. Well, uh, before we get into the possible motivations for the Republicans, there's one more name I want to add to your list. Um, in addition to Lindsey Graham and Tom Tillis, I might put uh, Mitch McConnell on that list for one reason, and that is what the Republicans have done about the the possibility that Trump could make a recess appointment during while the senators have gone home in August. You take this up in your new uh, piece for thenation.com. Just to review, one route to getting rid of Mueller is to fire the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who is protecting uh, Mueller at this point. Um, well, he's, not, he's not protecting Mueller, but but uh, Sessions recused himself yes. from, from the Russian... And that uh, functions. That functions to protect him. And a new attorney general presumably wouldn't recuse himself. How can Trump get a new attorney general? Well, the Republican senators have said that there would be extensive confirmation hearings where they would demand assurances uh, that Mueller would not be uh, replaced as part of this. There is one constitutional way that Trump, that any president can avoid confirmation hearings for a cabinet nominee, and that is this thing called the recess appointment. If the Senate is in recess, the president can make appointments without confirmation hearings, and that would last uh, until, uh, until January. But as you report at thenation.com, the Senate under Mitch McConnell has made it impossible for Trump to make recess appointments. Please explain how that happened. Well, the only way you can make a recess appointment is if Congress is in recess. That yes. is, yes. If, if it shuts its doors and goes home um, for you know fundraising or whatever. So, vacation. They call it uh, summer vacation. Right. So what, what the Republican leadership in the Senate has done is to simply say, we're not going to go into formal recess. We're going to meet periodically all throughout August so that technically there will be no recess Therefore, there can be no recess appointments. And uh, by the way, it was Senator Grassley, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who would be in charge of uh, confirming a new attorney general. And he also shut the door. He said, we're not going to do that. No way, no how. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's this weird thing where the Senate officially convenes uh, every Tuesday and Friday through the August recess. Everybody yeah, like every, th every three days, just to make believe that they're in session, so that that Trump can't appoint, can't fire Sessions and appoint somebody else. It's astounding uh, to me because that means the Republican leadership is has deliberately prevented Trump from doing the 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 one thing that he could do that would effectively expose Mueller to uh, to firing. Uh, now let's talk about what could their motivation be for this. One possibility that you've suggested is they fear the electoral consequences. Is there any possibility that Republicans believe in the rule of law and therefore want Mueller to continue? Well, I think, you know, every senator might have his or her own, um, you know, reasons. There were, it's no secret that the establishment of the Republican Party hated and despised 
Trump while he was running. They they didn't like his views, his ideas. He he you know knocked off all these establishment guys when he was getting the nomination, and the feeling was mutual. Trump and Bannon and the rest of them saw the um, Republican senators as cucks, you know, as as uh, lily-livered, you know, frady cats and people who were too establishment and all of that. And so, so there's no love lost between uh, the Republicans in the Senate. You know that one of the Republican senators, Jeff Flake, just issued a, a scathing book, a book-length attack on Trump, with calling him every name in the book, basically, yeah. and, and, and ridicule him and saying that we Republicans should be ashamed of ourselves for having submitted to this uh, completely unqualified, ridiculous man who's now in the White House. Um, John McCain has, you know, stood up pretty forcefully to the president, not just on the health care bill, but, you know, across the board on many things. Um, so why are they doing this? I mean, I think some of them, yes, they do believe in the rule of law. When you have a, a, a special counsel investigating a potential crime of this magnitude, you want to see the, the process play out. Um, I think some of them uh, are friends of Sessions, who's an ultra-conservative former senator. Yeah. Um, and they probably are teaming up with him, who came under, you know, scathing attack from Trump, ridicule, making fun of him, trying to, apparently trying to force him to resign a few weeks ago. Um, and And maybe it's because they figured out that you know, they're facing a catastrophe at the polls next year. Uh, Trump's popularity rating is down into the 30s. Uh, even Republicans are starting to turn against him. His, his support is evaporating. Um, and it's true, Trump is whipping up his base on his favorite issues, immigration, crime, gang violence, Islamic terrorism, etc. But um, that's not enough to counterbalance the fact that, um, you know, more and more people are sort of waking up one day and looking at a tweet and saying, what is this guy doing in the White House? And I think that includes a lot of Republicans as well. So it was it was uh, just in the last hour that Trump had this uh, strange meeting with the press outside his golf club in, in Bedminster, where he, you might say, ranged widely. Uh, but he was asked whether he uh, uh, whether he still intended to or wanted to uh, dismiss uh, Jeff Sessions or dismiss Robert Mueller, and his statement was, "quote I'm not dismissing anybody." Uh, that does seem to be a response to the realities of the situation. Of course, he can't directly dismiss the special counsel now. So remind us what it would take in next week or next month. Uh, if Trump wanted to end the investigation of the special counsel, what would it take? Well, because Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, recused himself from all things Russia, and, and he did that back in February because uh, he had this whole series of unexplained and uh, unadmitted to meetings with the Russian ambassador and so on. So he said, look, I'm I'm disqualified. So the deputy attorney general, the number two guy in the Justice Department, is a guy named Ron Rosenstein. Uh, Rosenstein then took over the Russiagate 
in, uh, part of the investigation from the Justice Department and the FBI. Um, when when Trump fired Comey, um, then the special counsel was appointed because everyone was so shocked that he was trying to apparently obstruct justice, and he said it was because of Russia that he fired Comey, right? So Rosenstein uh, chose to appoint this special counsel, Mueller. In order to fire Mueller, Trump would have to order Rosenstein, please fire Mueller, which he could do. He's the president. Um, but in that case, Rosenstein he has told Congress that he would not fire Mueller unless it was for good cause, and those causes are spelled out in detail in the legislation creating a special counsel. Um, I doubt Trump could meet any of them, so he would either uh, outright refuse to do it, in which case Trump could fire him, uh, or, um, well, I mean, I guess that would be the only option at that point, and then um, appoint somebody else who could do the job. But if he were to fire Sessions, theoretically at least, he could then name an attorney general in his place who would then no longer be recused because he'd be a brand new attorney general. He would take over the responsibility for Russiagate. He could um, then fire Mueller. But all of this, you know, it's no secret that it would be Trump doing all this. So Trump yeah. would bear the political the political cost of this. And, and I should add, by the way, that the special counsel is not completely independent. Um, his budget is controlled by Rosenstein and Justice. Um, any major decisions he makes have to be approved one by one by Rosenstein, although there's no indication that he's, in fact, I'm quite sure that he hasn't uh, overruled or stepped in on any of these. He's, he's treating it correctly as a hands-off investigation, yet technically uh, Mueller is subordinate to the deputy attorney general. He's not. It's not like a special in the, the old um, special prosecutors like Ken Starr was, who had a great deal more independence than a special counsel. The special prosecutor law uh, expired in the late 90s um, because neither Democrats or Republicans particularly wanted this kind of bird still around, so they, they, they killed it. So the big news uh, yesterday was uh, about the FBI raiding Paul Manafort's home uh, two weeks ago um, as part of the Russiagate investigations that Mueller is, is heading. Um, Manafort and his lawyers say he has been cooperating with investigators, providing right. all the documents that they have sought. So why did armed FBI agents show up at Manafort's house at 6 o'clock in the morning with search warrants? What, what does it take for the FBI to get a search warrant? Well, that's a whole bunch of different questions, right? I mean, to get a search warrant, you need to go to a judge, first of all, who is an impartial judge, not a political one, and say... We believe we have evidence of a crime. Uh, we believe that that evidence resides at this location, and therefore we need your permission to execute a raid on that location in order to collect the evidence that we believe is there. So it can't just be a fishing expedition. It can't just be um, we want to go into this guy's house 
to find stuff uh, <laughs> because you know we do have a constitution in this country right yeah. so so now the fact that they did it um uh early in the morning as opposed to at a polite time of day uh like tea time or something, <laughs> is is a sign that they're trying to demonstrate not just to Manafort, but to all the other people who are possible um, persons of interest, possible suspects in this broad investigation. Um, you know, we're serious. We're we're the untouchables, hmm. and we're coming after you. And so I think uh, there's no way to overstate how important that raid was because it sends a message to all kinds of people. Um, I mean... Manafort was important. He was Trump's campaign manager. He was involved in that famous Trump Tower meeting. Um, you're right that he did uh, voluntarily cooperate with the investigation. On the other hand, for them to have done this, they must have suspected that he wasn't telling the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He must, they must have suspected him of hiding something or they wouldn't have, have done this. Um, but if I were Jared Kushner, who is the president's son-in-law, uh, married to uh, Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, um, I, I'd be buying new locks for my front door because uh, it's not inconceivable, as astonishing and incredible as it would be, it's not inconceivable that tomorrow we'll find out that the FBI raided Jared Kushner's house on the same grounds because he was at the same meeting. Ditto. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, who was at that meeting, and, and other people who were involved in this, too. I mean, not just the three of them, but they were the, the people who were in that famous meeting where this Russian team of uh, intelligence types and so on went to the meeting saying, we have information about uh, Hillary Clinton, we have dirt about Clinton that comes from the Russian government, from the state prosecutor, in Russia, and we want to hand it over to you. And Donald Trump said, "Yeah, I love it. Come on in." And um, I mean, he literally said, "I love it." Yeah. And then uh, brought uh, Manafort and he brought uh, Kushner uh, into that meeting as well. Um, uh, we already know that the president himself uh, wrote the false, misleading statement that his son initially gave. Um, concerning that email, where that that meeting where he said his emails, etc., was just about adoptions, and then had to issue two subsequent clarifying statements over the next two days, as the New York Times released uh, the the email or had the emails, and of course, you know, Don Trump had to release his whole string of emails at that point. So, yeah, I mean, this is. This is devastating stuff. I think that shows the investigation is moving pretty fast into pretty high circles. And I don't think we've ever in American history seen anything like this. I mean, during Watergate, the people who were being investigated, at least at the you know main stage of that, were you know low level the plumbers, right? The yeah. Who did the break in and all of that, um, but it wasn't like they were. Uh, you know, breaking into RNC headquarters or, tra you know, uh, knocking down the doors of Richard Nixon's daughters. Um, <laughs> well, I want I, there. We have some new news at this hour. 
for what it's worth, Trump in this conversation with the the press corps uh, at, at Bedminster uh, in the last hour was asked about the FBI's surprise dawn raid on Manafort's uh, house, and Trump said only that it was, quote, a strong signal or whatever, close quote, a strong signal or whatever, close quote. He did not say it was an outrage, it was unacceptable, it was a violation, it was wrong. He said it was a strong signal or whatever. What do you make of that? Um, You know, I've long given up trying to make sense of anything that Trump says. And I, and I, I don't think, I mean, whatever he says now, he'll say the exact opposite in three hours. This, of course, is true. Um, I was surprised, you know, I was surprised that, he, that he didn't make any attempt to defend Paul Manafort. Um, uh, it's interesting. I mean, one of the really intriguing dimensions of the Mueller investigation is whether Mueller has tried to flip some of these key people. Yeah. Manafort could be one. Yeah. Uh, General Flynn could be another. Um, if they find that Manafort, you know, got into a bar fight um, and say, look, you know, you can go to a, a jail for a, two years for hitting somebody with a broken wine bottle, um, but we'll let you off that case if you, on that, if, if you tell us about Russiagate, whatever. You know, they can find anything about Manafort and use it to flip him. Um, same thing with Flynn, you know, his misstatements on his disclosure forms, all that security clearance form, all those things. So if he's flipping these people, then they're starting to turn what they, you know, state's evidence, as they say, on criminal minds or whatever, and and starting to blab about what they know about Russiagate. I don't know if you saw the story in the National Enquirer. No. Um, but the National... Uh, Literally hours after the raid on Manafort's home, the National Enquirer ran a one of those sleazy pig stories they write about Manafort having had an affair with a younger woman. Um, now, why is that significant? Because the owner of the National Enquirer is a, a buddy of Trump's. Yeah, he used to, he used to publish a, a, one of Trump's publications. All during the 2016 campaign, the National Enquirer was like slacking for Trump, praising him, you know, attacking Clinton, running horrible, distorted pictures of Clinton on the front page. So why would they suddenly leak a big story about Manafort's affair um, unless they're trying now to discredit him? Um, I don't know. I mean, you've convinced me. This is this is dirty stuff, and it's going to get a lot dirtier. Bob Dreyfus, he's writing a series of weekly reports for The Nation on the Russia investigations. The new one is titled, Why Trump's Attacks on Mueller Are Getting Some Surprising Pushback from Republicans. You can read it now at thenation.com. We will be returning to Bob Dreyfus about, uh, to talk more about the ongoing and breaking news about the Russia investigations in the weeks to come. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. Uh, Next up, Bernie has been busy, that's in a minute, on KPFK 
when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Katha Pollitt's advice for the anxious and and depressed in the age of Trump. But first... Now it's time to talk about Bernie. Bernie has been busy lately with political rallies in Trump country... The Vermont senator never really stopped campaigning, even after he lost the nomination and the Democrats lost the election. Benjamin Wallace Wells of The New Yorker has been traveling with Bernie lately. He's a staff writer at the magazine who began writing there in 2006. He's also written for New York Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, and Rolling Stone. And his work has been collected in The Best American Political Writing. We reached him today in Boston. Ben Wallace-Wells, welcome to the program. Thanks so much to to be with you. Uh, Interested in talking about this. Well, since Trump was elected, Bernie has held rallies, I learned from your article, in Michigan, Mississippi, Maine, West Virginia, Arizona, Nevada, Ohio, Kentucky, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, (laughs) Montana, Florida, Iowa, Maryland, and Illinois. After the article came out, I I got a note from the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party asking if I could could please in subsequent... (laughs) Uh, interviews point out that he had also been to Nebraska. That's right. He, he went to <laughs> Omaha to endorse right. the campaign for that <laughs> a House candidate who who didn't With get a elected. Real no, I mean, you know, Bernie's, Bernie's line, you know, I think as, as anybody who, who uh, watched him closely during the campaign, Bernie's line on on Trump is is basically that, you know, um, Trump did not win the election so much as the Democrats lost it. Um, and he does say, say frequently that you know, uh, the Democrats have been relatively blind to uh, uh, the unequal way in which the benefits of globalization have been distributed, where, you know, a few coastal cities have done incredibly well, but a lot, but a lot of places in, in the middle of the country have done incredibly poorly. And his view of the Trump phenomenon is, you know, it's sort of that Trump was kind of a scam socialist, you know, that, that Trump mm-hmm. promised, cared about working people, that he was very focused on trade and income disparities and other issues that, that sort of affect ordinary working folk, but that, you know, and this is Bernie talking, not me, but, but you know, that he lied and, and Bernie is very clear to say lie, uh, and that he ended up sort of stocking his cabinet with a very conventional set of plutocratic politicians and pro-plutocratic policies. And so his account is, is basically that the Democrats ignored people who had not done well. Uh, over the last 20 or 25 years, and that Trump took advantage by lying to them. You've been to some of these Bernie events. What are they like, and uh, what is his speech uh, like these days? How different is it from primary campaign? Well, it sort of depends on on the venue. I mean, to take a step back for a second, sure. There's a couple of interesting things that are that are sort of that are sort of happening, like with Sanders and through Sanders right now. One is that. On policy, he really sort of does seem to be winning the argument within the Democratic Party, at least on on many of his signature issues. The party is now formally behind in its platform for 2018, formally behind a $15 an hour national minimum wage. 
which is really pretty startling given where we were five or six years ago. Yeah. They are not they are not yet formally behind Medicare for all, but there's certainly a lot more momentum in that direction. Uh, Medicare for all being Sanders' version of of kind of single payer healthcare, uh, but they're they're moving a lot more in that direction than they had been before. And then also on free college tuition, I, I think I would say there that there is at least a sense, um, and you saw this even in the later days of the, the Hillary Clinton campaign, there is at least a sense that the party will have to find some way to be able to say that it is providing uh, college education virtually free of cost. And so on policy, there's, I think, a pretty strong case to be made that the Democratic, that the effect of the 2016 campaign has been to push the Democratic Party much closer to Sanders himself. And when you talk to people within the institutional Democratic Party about this and about Bernie generally, you often hear them say things like, I heard this a number of times, why can't Bernie realize and acknowledge that he's won? Hmm. Why is there still this rhetoric? about the Democratic Party has, has let us down, the Democratic Party is still in hock to the billionaire class. Why is there still this talk about the Democratic Party as if it is sort of in need of further reform? When, when I was out with, with Sanders and I went with him to Appalachia, I also went with him to England, which was sort of interesting in different ways. You did sense a, a kind of complexity to his position right now because in the aftermath of the 2016 campaign, he joined the, the Senate leadership team. He's now sort of a formal part of the Democratic Party's leadership in, in the Senate, while still not formally being a Democrat. And he is out there, in many cases, making a, a, a very strong case uh, against the various Republican efforts to repeal Obamacare. So making a very uh, Democratic argument to voters in places that many other Democrats could not reach. At the same time, there is still a lot of the, the talk that, you know, you would find very familiar from the campaign about the kind of perfidies of the billionaire class and the problems of, of Washington more broadly that, that did tend to alienate uh, some more institutional Democrats. So his message during the campaign, he repeated it over and over, was uh, Medicare for all, free college tuition, $15 minimum wage. Is that changing uh, these days? It's still similar. Um, I think that I'd put it more broadly, though. I, I think that for me, the kind of background to those to those policies, which are definitely the center of of his his candidacy and sort of his ongoing role in America life, American life, was this just lucid certainty that we were caught, we are caught in a contest between democracy and oligarchy. Yeah. That, you know, the accumulation of wealth and political influence among a very few individuals. Is not just sort of a technical problem to be solved, but represents a kind of existential threat uh, for the kind of, of society that, that, that we want to live in. Uh, a lot of folks in, in talking about Sanders, both within the party and just, you know, sort of in, in the commentariat, would often talk about him as a exemplar of a, a general leftward movement, particularly among young voters. And I, I think that's true, and I think it's real. But I think that an additional part of both his appeal during the campaign and his continuing appeal, both of which surprised people very close to Sanders, you know, sort of all along. They didn't expect this at either stage necessarily. I think a big part of the appeal is just his ability to put the terms of the argument very broadly and grandly yeah. and, to, and to not not diminish the stakes, to, to, to tell people that, like, the particular fights they're in 
over gerrymandering or over healthcare, you have uh, this kind of existential or, or very broad philosophical backing to them. And, and, and the clarity of that and the lucidity of that, I think, remains very captivating and probably even more so than that our, our president is Donald Trump. Uh, you quote Bernie saying, my wife tells me my speeches are too bleak. What is the bleak part of the speeches? The speeches are, are indisputably bleak. <laughs> and Sanders, like standard some speech, is basically a document of escalating inequality and unfairness. It's an account of recent American history in which ordinary people lose at every turn and uh, rich and powerful people win. I think there is a sense with Sanders that, you know, when you are in um, these kind of intense rallies, that he's documenting the drift of the world and yeah. the instrument that he offers to fix it, to correct it, is politics itself. And mm -hmm. so that particular rally then becomes a kind of an, an, an instrument for fixing this kind of drift towards plutocracy or oligarchy, or however you want to describe it. And that concentrates a, a kind of incredible energy in his campaign and in his, in his rallies. Doesn't he often say there is a lot of pain out there and aren't kind of death and despair part of the... I, 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 yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is, this is particularly poignant. You know, a lot of the um, particular role he plays in, in Senate leadership, back up for a second, is that he's, uh, he's filling a new position. You know, he's not the, the whip and he's not the chair, chair of the, the policy committee. His job is what's called uh, outreach chair. And I think that that represents, you know, within uh, the Senate leadership and also within the, the DNC, a recognition that uh, Sanders is voting, is, is reaching voters who um, it is very important for the Democratic Party to reach. And those voters are, you know, the, the mythologized but real uh, white working class that, you know, some of whom voted for Obama and then voted for, for Trump. Yeah. And so Sanders sort of is, is sort of the solution. And there, um, and I saw him, you know, just because of when I happened to be going around with him, I saw him in a number of these settings in West Virginia and in Kentucky particularly. There, his message is, is certainly that, you know, it's that, um, that the health of these communities, the well-being is at risk, is something that has been, you know, entirely abandoned by the Republicans who claim to speak for these places and, and, and win elections in them. He talks often about the uh, Angus Deaton and Ann case studies about, you know, the escalating what are called deaths of despair, suicides, opioid uh, addiction, alcohol addiction among uh, white people without college degrees. In this particular argument over healthcare, and in the particular terrain of uh, sort of white working class communities, uh, I think he has a pretty acute sense that 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 like death is on the table, that that, that people are dying who should not be dying. So how does this acknowledgement, this talk about death and despair, go over with his uh, audiences? Usually successful politicians have a positive, uplifting message. Yes, we can, or make America great again. Right. I mean, I think that it, it is a sign of sort of where we are. I think that, you know, especially for, for the audiences that, that he's trying to reach, meaning both sort of more economically marginal communities, but also just young people. There is just, a, see this in poll after poll, there's just a, a, a real diminished faith in kind of the normal institutions of, of American life to make it great again or to, uh, to, to provide some uplift or to confirm that, yes, we can 
And I think that the kind of great mystery of Sanders during the campaign was how is it that this kind of curmudgeonly 70, I guess, four-year-old socialist at the time who had been dismissed by a lot of very, very serious people for a very, very long time suddenly became not just a phenomenon, but a figure who, if you look at the, at the demographics of his voters, sort of seemed to be on the cutting edge, seemed to be where everybody wanted to be, seemed to have some, some hold on, on the future of, of liberal left politics. And I think part of the answer is just that he was not optimistic, that he yeah. did not see the world was getting better, that he did not have a lot of faith in the kind of established organs of American life, that he saw them in some essential ways as corrupt. And I think that, like, you know, a lot of uh, particularly young voters, but also just ordinary folks saw the world the same way. Bernie is now 75 years old. Is yeah. he thinking about running again in 2020? I know there's a lot of talk about that among his, his uh, supporters. And who among the Democrats is taking up Bernie's issues and Bernie's analysis, assuming he's not going to run? I don't think there's a, there's a perfect analog. You know, I, I don't think there's a perfect figure who's 15 years younger or 20 years younger who fills that role. And I think that that creates a complication because I think at, at some very real level, he would like there to be. And, you know, he's, he's uh, built this whole sort of new but interesting grassroots organization called, called Our Revolution that's supposed to kind of develop a next generation of, yes. of political leaders in the Bernie mold um, and which probably bombards all of your uh, listeners with emails four times a day. Uh, <laughs> yes. and so I think he, he wants that. But, you know, I think that there is there is not a clear uh, other figure. I think he has sort of an interesting but complicated relationship with Elizabeth Warren. I think that his view of the Democratic Party is still, like, I found him quite a bit more reticent to sort of say, more reluctant to say that, that the party had moved in his direction than just about anybody else. You know, he kept telling me, you know, like, don't underestimate the influence of the billionaire class. Don't think that the establishment Democrats have, have given up, even though on policy, he sort of would acknowledge that, yes, there has been some movement in, in a direction that, that he had hoped to, to bring about. And so, uh, yeah, like, it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, he's, he's really getting up there in years. You know, his wife told me at one point that he, um, he talks about the number of his age sometimes and, like, still feels young, still feels up for it, still feels, feels like, you know, able to do this kind of physical campaigning. But sometimes he does consider the number and think about what is, is realistic uh, in the long run. My own instinct here is that politics is never static. He filled a particular role in the 2016 election, and he's filling a particular role right now incredibly successfully, incredibly well. As with every politician at every, at every point in their career, things don't stay still. And so I expect that as we move into 2018 and then 2019 and then 2020, he will look a little bit different to voters. He'll come to stand for a slightly different kind of thing. And I don't know exactly what that will be. Maybe he will be a little bit more strongly associated with the Democratic Party than he has been before. Maybe he will defend uh, the party in a way that he hasn't previously. Maybe he will, I mean, I don't know, it could be any number of things. But like, I, I just, my feeling is just that, like, it is unlikely that he plays exactly the same role in 2020 that he plays in 2016. And then the, the kind of interesting question becomes, is there a figure within the Democratic Party, and particularly a younger figure, who not only 
sort of checks the boxes on his policy prescriptions, which I think there there probably will be some, but who can who can also summon that sense of alienation and anger and idealism all in one. And that when I look out at the field, that's a that's a tougher ask. I don't I don't see a figure right now that has that same sensibility. I think the people that he is sort of pushing through our revolution are a generation to, you know, we're, we're a generation away from that, that project being mature. And so I think for, um, the, you know, Elizabeth Warren is a very interesting kind of left-leaning figure, though uh, Kamala Harris presents a different idea of what, you know, a liberal candidate for the White House might be. Though I think there will be progressive options and we will have a more progressive party. I, I don't know that we will have a, an exact Bernie analog running in 2020. Benjamin Wallace Wells wrote about his travels with Bernie for the current issue of The New Yorker. Ben, thanks for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Katha Pollitt talks about how to survive the coming months of the Trump era. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. And streaming online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first. We're six months into the Trump era, and how are you feeling about the world today? Katha Pollitt has been asking around. She joins us now to tell us what she discovered. Of course, Katha is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. Are you? I want to start with you, though. How are you feeling about politics and life these days? Oh, my God. Every day is worse than the day before. <laughs> I used to go for a long time without reading the New York Post. And every time I would be lured in by some scandalous head headline, I'd buy the paper, which only cost 25 cents. I would think, oh, my God, it's even worse than before. And I would think, okay, they're going to reach bottom sometimes, but they never did. They <laughs> and this is the Trump administration is like that. It's just never, it never gets better. Well, I think among people who care about politics, the the realistic uh, stance is depression mixed with anxiety, or maybe it's anxiety mixed with depression. Is that the way things are at your house? Well, we have a rule that we can't talk about Trump before eight in the morning <laughs> okay. or after 10 at night, because after if we were talking about him so much, we couldn't sleep. And, <laughs> and, and, and most days we do keep to that, although Stephen says we do not, actually. Well, but I, the illusion that we're cutting back. At my house, we have some rules, too. Uh, one of my rules is a day without Trump every week. No talking about Trump, no reading about Trump, no tweeting about Trump. It's really hard to do, but it's my, it's my goal. 
Another rule at our house is at dinner with friends, no talk about Trump is allowed for the first one hour. And of course, many of our friends violate this rule. But if, if that doesn't work, if somebody does start talking about Trump in the first hour, the, the, the plan B of this rule is that after you talk about Trump, you have to talk about something else for one hour minimum. What do you think of those oh. rules? Well, I think I would just deprive them of dessert. (laughs) (laughs) You live in New York City. I live in L.A. These are two of the least Republican places on Earth. It's very hard to find Trump supporters in in New York City or in L.A., although I do have some relatives in L.A. who are Republicans. I don't think they're that enthusiastic about Trump. You know, they just want tax cuts and less government regulation on business. Have you tried to talk to any Trump supporters? Well, yes, I have. You know, people are always saying you have to get out of your bubble. We, those of us who live in places like the Upper West Side or Los Angeles. So I try to do that a little bit. Uh, So last weekend, I had a long talk with a Trump supporter in upstate New York, where I happen to be visiting friends. And this guy is a friend of a friend. Uh, He's extremely conservative. And the thing that's interesting, and I think this must be so often the case, he is a perfectly lovely guy, and he just has his own facts. So in his world, there are plenty of jobs, but people won't take them because it's so easy to get, you know, a full panoply of government benefits and live well. Uh, 30 to 40 percent of people on Medicaid are defrauding the government and high taxes and regulations have ruined upstate New York. And, you know, I didn't tell him since he was in upstate New York, New York's upstate New York has been in the process of being ruined for over 100 years. Yes. I don't think government regulations have a whole lot to do with that. Um, So he thinks the free market would solve all our problems. Supply and demand, it's a beautiful thing, he said. So mostly I just listen and ask questions, and it may surprise some of your listeners that I can actually do this. (laughs) Okay. Well, we we salute you. Now, for this new column of yours, you set out to learn how— other people, people like us, are dealing with life in the age of Trump. And uh, you employed the most advanced tools of the science of public opinion. Is that correct? Yes, I talked to my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I talked to my friends. I put up something on Facebook. So, okay, my, my scientific findings are that the chief effects are distractibility, loss of focus, anxiety, depression, despair, anger, Some people are drinking more, others are drinking less. Some people have gone into therapy and a therapist who responded said, oh, this is what my patients all want to talk about. Mm. And uh, one person, Emily, Emily Jane Goodman, who is a retired Supreme Court justice of the state of New York said, she said something so sweet. She said, I feel like I'm back in law school. Every day brings a new constitutional question to ponder, analyze, and discuss. (laughs) That's a healthy uh, response. Helps if you can just see this all as an educational opportunity. Well, I I tell people to try to make them feel better, friends of mine. I say every week is a bad week for Trump. And it seems to me that should make us feel better. But a very smart friend of mine replied, and every week is also a bad week for us. Yes, this is true. And then Trump did something so brilliant, which is that he made Pence his vice president. So after you have had all your optimistic, cheery thoughts about, ooh, impeachment, ooh, the 25th Amendment, ooh, maybe he'll just go away somehow, you think, right. And then we get Mike Pence, who won't even have dinner with a woman who isn't his wife and who is a total stone reactionary theocrat. 
But if Pence uh, assumed the presidential seat in the White House, the media would be so happy because he has gravitas, things would be calm, he would have relations with Congress, um, he wouldn't be a paranoid lunatic about to blow up the world. <laughs> and so it really has this feeling like, well, what is going to happen? Can we last four years, yeah. 42 months, 42 months, my God, it seems like forever. So in your scientific study of how people are doing in the Trump era, I wonder if you found there's a difference between men and women in how they're dealing with life under Trump. Well, this is very tentative. Uh, my researchers are still performing experiments to just decide whether this is in fact the case. But, okay. um, but it, it is true that there were a number of people who said, I feel energized. I feel, you know, I was born to fight this. I'm a journalist and there are just more stories that I can cover. I just feel hugely uh, full of spirit and I leap out of bed every morning. Those people were all men. Uh -huh. Huh. And they were, they were just all men. It's really kind. Of, and, and there were men who were depressed and anxious and women who were depressed and anxious, but the energized people were all, were all men. And so were the people who felt some sense of optimism, like uh, Mark Oppenheimer, who is a very good journalist who writes a lot about religion. He wrote, I take a renewed sense of urgency to all my work now. The U.S. may have a terrible executive branch, but my hometown of New Haven doesn't. Whenever I worry that freedom could be corroded here the way they have been in Hungary or Poland, I think, wait, would the people on my block or on my street allow that? I don't think they would. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, New Haven. <laughs> but then uh, a, a Washington-based journalist wrote, so Washington may already be a lost cause, I wrote, because here's a D.C.-based journalist who said, watching so many people I know more from, obviously I can't support Trump, too. Of course I'll help Trump confirm birthers to the federal bench, <laughs> has rolled down my friend list. Mm. There are friends I have not spoken to since November 8th, and never will speak to again. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it may be that journalists are a special group. The journalists that I know, female and male alike, mostly say this is a great time to be a journalist and this is going to a golden age of journalism. We're, you know, we're back to the Watergate era where somebody's going to win a Pulitzer Prize. It's an exciting time to be a journalist. I think they're in a special, uh, a special category where they really do have career opportunities and work challenges that ordinary people don't have. I do think that that's a very interesting point. Now, I would say that the people I knew who were the most optimistic were people who were who were being activists. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who really weren't doing an, uh, very much with their liberal politics until Trump got elected. And that's when you saw the Women's March and all the things that came out of that, the huddle and then people going. A lot of those people migrated into indivisible. Yeah. So I, I think when people feel that there are actions they can take to shape their world, there's something very upcheering about that. When they stay on Twitter and just attack their people who agree with them 95% of the time all day long, that I think is very depleting. So I think, uh, I think we are moving towards some wisdom that you can provide to help us face 
the coming months and maybe years with Trump, do you have any wisdom that you can offer us in conclusion? So I am taking a pledge to shun stupid fights with people I agree with politically 95% of the time. This will be a great challenge for me. (laughs) I might need the Dalai Lama's help for that. Uh, But I want to just, I closed my column with a quote from a wonderful man, uh, University of Chicago policy wonk, um, health policy maven, Harold Pollack. And he said, we need to support each other We need to be kind and decent to each other, too, across many personal and political divides. We are going to defeat Trump if he doesn't defeat himself first. But this race is not a sprint. It's a long-distance run. Katha Pollitt, read her new column on surviving another year or two under Trump at thenation.com. Katha, thank you for your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me, John. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul. We've been following the news about the bombing of the Islamic Center in Bloomington on Saturday. Bloomington, Minnesota is best known as the place where the Mall of America is. Uh, There was extensive damage after this early morning bombing attack on the Islamic Center in Bloomington. Extensive damage, but no injuries. Uh, Most of the news is about the refusal of President Trump to comment, to condemn, or otherwise say a word about the attack on the the Islamic Center in in Bloomington. Um, And the biggest news came uh, two days ago when one of his top national security advisors, Sebastian Gorka, suggested that the Minnesota mosque attack could have been faked by the left. Uh, Sebastian Gorka um, has defended Trump's silence on the bombing of the mosque, Uh, especially it was on MSNBC on Tuesday when he was asked why Trump had not commented on the Saturday bombing. Gorka said the president wanted to wait until he learned more about it. It is notable that Trump comments almost immediately when there are uh, attacks carried out by Muslims anywhere in the world. But what Gorka said was, quote, when we have some kind of finalized investigation, absolutely, quote, quote, Trump would respond. But then he suggested that the attack could have been what he called a fake hate crime. Uh, quote, Gorka, there's a great rule. All initial support reports are false. You have to check them out and find out who the perpetrators are. Uh, we've had a series of crimes committed by uh, alleged hate crimes by right-wing individuals, which turned out to be actually propagated by the left. He said, let's allow the local authorities to provide their assessment, and then the White House will make its comment. Uh, in Minnesota, this is not a controversial attack. Uh, Minnesota, Mark, uh, uh, Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton called it a criminal attack on terrorism. And uh, Congressman uh, Keith Ellison of Minneapolis also called it a terrorist attack. As recently as a couple of hours ago, uh, Sebastian Gorka uh, repeated the argument that Trump will comment as soon as the local investigation is is complete and it is, quote, unequivocally clear uh, what happened because, quote, people fake hate crimes. Um, 
It is uh, notable that when there was that attack in London uh, 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 a month ago, Trump immediately uh, denounced Muslims everywhere for uh, for uh, their uh, complicity uh, w- with this. Uh, the other news about the the bombing attack on the Islamic Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, is that people have contributed eighty-four thousand dollars to rebuilding the mosque in a GoFundMe campaign that is still underway. So uh, we're still waiting for uh, Trump to make a comment on the attack on the uh, the Islamic Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, and and. Uh, We'll see what happens next. The other news, we just have a, a minute or so left here. Trump did speak this afternoon to reporters outside his golf club in uh, Bedminster, Maryland. He was asked whether he intended to uh, dismiss Attorney General Jeff Sessions or Special Counsel Robert Mueller. And he said, quote, I'm not dismissing anybody. Of course, who knows what he'll say uh, tomorrow. Uh, but that's the news at this hour. And that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Bob Dreyfus of The Nation, reported on Republican support for special counsel Robert Mueller and his investigations of Trump and the Trump campaign. Uh, He also talked about the FBI raid on Paul Manafort's home. Also, we spoke with Benjamin Wallace Wells of The New Yorker about his recent travels with Bernie. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight, this is happening. Jerry Quickly talks with Gabriel Hetland of The Nation about the crisis in Venezuela. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.